This is Radio Free Signs of the Times, broadcasting into the heart of occupied America. Welcome to this week's Signs of the Time podcast. We're back once again with Laura Knight-Yadchik. Last week, we were talking about Laura's experiences with hypnosis, and in particular, looking at the question of reincarnation. In her experiences working with people with hypnotherapy, Laura found that people would go back and talk about past lives. Now, this raises the question of reincarnation, but nothing that Laura had done ever gave her any proof or any kind of evidence that would suggest that these so-called past lives were anything more than symbolic environments that the person was bringing forward in relationship to some trauma or some blockage that they had. What was interesting was that in using these supposed past lives to help people work through their traumas or their blockages, that it worked in a very, very powerful way. But this in no way brought forward any evidence that was convincing that reincarnation was in fact uh, true. And then Laura came upon a case that was shall we say, surprising, and that did offer something that indicates that there may be something to the question of reincarnation. This is what we are going to talk with her about tonight. Well, we hope we're going to get to that tonight because after leaving off last week with that remark about the situation that caused me to rethink my position on reincarnation, I realized that there were several intervening incidents that Uh, led up to that point and gave me a lot of things to think about before that even occurred. One of these uh, incidents involved a a strange situation, you know, because in point of fact there was no hypnosis involved. Uh, There was a young woman who brought her son to me, and the son was having some some problems treating his uh, baby brother and baby sister kindly. He was doing some unusual sexually oriented things and making remarks that were sexually oriented that were completely inappropriate for a six-year-old boy. Well, first of all, when you you encounter something like this, you immediately think that there is some sort of sexual abuse going on somewhere in the family. So naturally, I questioned along this line and was assured with confidence that that was not the case. Of course, that assurance didn't convince me. Nevertheless, I decided, you know, I would talk to the child and see if I could determine anything. A six-year-old child is, is, shall we say, uh, dissociated a lot of the time anyway, and, and since hypnosis is really more or less a state of dissociation, I just simply don't hypnotize six-year-old children. It's easier to just talk to them because they dissociate naturally anyway. Mm-hmm. So I talked to the child and asked him oh, many, many questions. And at some point, something shifted in the child when I began to approach these subjects of what he was doing and thinking, uh, thinking about his baby sister. And he looked at me. Something in his eyes changed. They became very sharp and cunning. And he looked at me with a, a preternatural expression that, that truly start, startled me. It, it shocked me even. And he told me that, uh, that I know what I'm doing and I will continue to do it and nothing you can do will stop me. And he said this in a very adult voice that was completely out of character for this little six-year-old boy. 
it was a, it had a firmness it had a uh, an adult quality about it that 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 was disorienting but nevertheless you know i i continued to talk to him and then in, in another second or so he had switched back to his very sweet uh 6-year-old self you know with his kind of squeaky little voice and his vague easily distractible remarks about one thing and another and how easily he was led from one subject to another so that made me start to think you know was was this a uh, a situation of of something that that we would call possession so i began to research and read about those subjects to see if anybody had ever, you know, encountered something like this with a six-year-old child. I mean, we all remember the movie The Exorcist where this horribly demonic voice comes out of this you know, innocent-looking young child and who, who then proceeds to barf, you know... Pea soup. Pea soup, yeah. <laughs> it, uh, but this, this was a very small incident, a kind of a, a glitch in the normal personality of a six-year-old, so nothing at all to, to compare to that, but it still got me wondering. I did suspect that there was more to the uh, sexual abuse issue in that family than I was able to uncover myself, and I referred the family to um, a psychological clinic in the area because they simply needed you know, more help than I was capable or qualified to provide. But later on, I did learn uh, from this individual who came back to talk to me again that they had discovered that the uh, the uncle of this little boy was sexually abusing him and his little cousin and showing them pornographic videos on television. And uh, it was it was really kind of an ugly situation, but that's a whole other subject that we could spend you know, several podcasts talking about. But the thing was, was that it started me reading on the subject of possession. And as I continued to read, I eventually came across the work of Dr. Bill Baldwin, or William Baldwin, uh, who, who wrote a book called Spirit Releasement Therapy. Now, Bill Baldwin had started life as a dentist, I believe, and used hypnosis in his dentistry practice. And because of the amazing results he had with hypnosis, using it with his patients during dental procedures, he became even more interested in it and began to, to study it further and to do some experimentation. And he, he came across the issue of what he called spirit attachment, where supposedly a, an individual who has died does not go through a proper cycling on the etheric planes or the astral planes, whatever term you prefer to use for them, uh, and basically hangs around in some sort of semi, semi-death zone where they attach to other people. It, it's really a bizarre concept when you think about it, but if you consider that supposedly a spiritual being a soul, whatever term you want to use. And we we have a lot of problems finding the right terminology to even discuss these things because our normal language doesn't give us a vocabulary. There are many vocabularies created by this or that uh, esotericist down through the century. But 
none of them are exactly the same. Some people call them the astral planes, some call them the etheric planes, they call them astral bodies, etheric bodies, souls, spirits. You know, there's there's no real definitions for any of these words that are equal across the board. So forgive me for not having, you know, the exact words in every case because I, I've learned so many that it's difficult to know which one to use. But anyway, they are uh, the soul, and we'll, and we'll just try to stick with that one, uh, gets lost in space, so to speak. And the soul being a, a discrete unit of a certain frequency or a vibration or a, a, you know, an oscillating energy then seeks out a similar frequency or oscillating energy to to attach to or to blend with, you know, similar to the way a uh, the droplets of fat on a, on a bowl of soup draw together. So it, it floats around in this uh, timeless, uh, spaceless region, which is very, very difficult to conceptualize until it finds a, what, what, what you would call a frequency match. And then it gloms onto or melds itself to that frequency match. And if that frequency match happens to be an area of the psyche of a, of a living human being who is occupying a body, then so much the worse for that living human being because they now have what you might call a, uh, a sort of astral hitchhiker. So this is pretty much what Bill Baldwin was getting into, and he was finding that there were many psychic hitchhikers in the subconscious or uh, frequency fields of human beings. And I believe he gave some estimates at one point, and it was it was pretty shocking that he said that probably 96 to 98% of, of people have their own attachment, their own uh, psychic hitchhiker, and that most of them have more than one. Well, this was pretty incredible stuff, and I was... I was reading through it and saying, oh, this is just absolutely the most unbelievable thing I've ever read because certainly I don't have one. I mean, I certainly, if I had one, I would know it, wouldn't I? So I decided to do some experiments. And I had a, a, a client not too long afterward who had just, you know, your, your usual run-of-the-mill issues that w- was my purview, which... You know, habits or stress, and I decided, you know, and I asked permission, you know, I'd like to try a little experiment. I can't tell you anything about it in advance, but, I, you know, I'd just like to try it. Do you agree? Okay, so I got the agreement, and during the session, after I had dealt with the issues that the client was there to have uh, to have therapy for, I began the process of utilizing Bill Baldwin's uh, differential diagnosis. Now, the differential diagnosis is a series of questions that you ask, and each question, depending on the answer, leads to the next question, to the next, so that eventually, you know, it's kind of like diagnosing an illness. You, you determine whether or not the person has an attachment, if so, what kind of an attachment it is, uh, and all the details about it, so that you can then have uh, the tools available to uh, help the person get rid of this, this attachment. And I was really, really, really surprised when the person answered the questions, and, and, and they're open questions. They're, they're not loaded. They're not uh, manipulative. They're not leading. And identified a series of four or five different attachments. 
And not only that, but that the formula that Baldwin had set up for eliminating these attachments or getting them to to leave, as he put it, to go into the light, worked. It worked quite easily. What was also interesting was to learn that the attachments were related quite often to some sort of physical disability problem or anomaly. For example, you know, a person who has a, a bum knee that makes clicky noises and and gives them a little trouble when they wake up in the morning was found to have uh, an attachment in that knee, don't ask me how, that uh, had arrived at some point in his life when he was young when he had fallen down and hurt his knee. So there was a, because of the pain, the emotional pain, the, the physical pain, you know, the various uh, pain frequencies that the person was experiencing at the time in his youth when he fell and hurt his knee, uh, these matched a large segment of the frequencies of the, of the purported soul that attached to him. So it found frequency resonance in this area of the knee, glommed on, and was there forever. And the knee, unfortunately, because of this, didn't heal. It's the, the body's own natural ability to heal itself, to restore its, its uh, healthy frequency signature in that area of that person's body, was never able to overcome the fact that there was the presence of this other energy there, that kept the knee frequency, shall we say, uh, distorted to the original injury frequency. So as it happened, once the, once the entity, and, and I use that term kind of loosely here, once the entity departed, the person's knee got well. And that was the kind of thing that I was seeing happen. And it wasn't just knees, it was back pains, it was uh, stiff necks, it was you know, arthritic fingers, r- repeated female problems, uh, all kinds of, of, of strange physical issues that people had uh, on a chronic basis were just simply going away when these entities left. And I found that to be extremely surprising and interesting. So I decided at this point that I didn't really care whether they had a real spiritual attachment or not. What I cared about was that this unique little therapeutic mode actually worked. People were were getting over problems that had been tormenting them for a long time. There was even a very curious one where, where the individual had an extremely effeminate personality and didn't inside his own head feel effeminate certainly he wasn't homosexual he had no attraction for men he, well he really had no attraction for anybody in, in that particular instance and uh, during the course of, of uh, the therapeutic session he identified an attachment that was uh, a woman who had died in the in the process of being raped or she'd been raped and then had been killed and she found him and he was in an emotional state that was not generated by the same kind of activity but certainly of a similar frequency and she just glommed on to him and also the remark was made that she she attached because of the sympathetic nature of this individual 
that it wasn't so much the exact identical frequency signature necessarily as it was a complementary signature. So someone who is looking for sympathy or who is deprived of sympathy could attach to someone who had a great deal of sympathy to give. So they fit together like puzzle pieces. In any event, this this alleged entity was was counseled and departed and immediately thereafter the individual uh, the the primary patient shall we say or the primary subject was relieved of these effeminate gestures that he unconsciously made i mean it's just like they just turned off there was no longer it, it wasn't even like it was a habit it was as though it had never been there so that was another big surprise. So I was I was just observing these things and and doing these little experimental things and and being amazed over and over again at at the way it worked. So jumping over now to another subject that was going on at the same time, another event. There was a uh, another situation where two young girls were brought to me and they were sisters and they were not getting along very well and and it was to the point where it was actually distressing or disturbing to the family. The mother was particularly upset. And the oldest child was about nine years old, so there was a possibility of doing a a guided imagery session with her, which I did. Well, I asked her just to to go to that that event when or, or that moment when her feelings of animosity towards her sister had begun. And I didn't say anything about a past life. I didn't say anything about, you know, going back into the womb and back, you know, past death or, you know, none of those things you read about in books. I just said, you know, I asked her to go to that moment when her, you know, when she first felt these powerful feelings of animosity towards her sister and gave her a few moments. And then I asked her, okay, can you describe to me, you know, what, what, what's happening? Where are you and what's, what's going on? What do you see? And she began to talk about riding on a horse through a forest. And as the, as I continued to question, she was wearing armor. She was riding with a message for, you know, to get uh, reinforcements for a war that was going on. And she met another armored soldier in the forest, or was ambushed. And the in the ensuing fight, the remark was made: "I was I was stabbed, or I was uh, I was killed." And I said, "Well, you're wearing armor. How 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 could that happen?" And she said, "Well, she, you know, the sword went in through the weak place in my armor and identified the the exact place where the sword had gone in." And this was just really kind of a surprising little little episode that came up in a child who was raised in a very Christian household where where the idea of reincarnation not only had never been discussed, but it was just completely a forbidden topic. That's not to say that the child couldn't have, have heard about it or, or read something about it, because she certainly, you know, at nine years old, she could have read or, or found out any number of things. But the details that she gave about this incident were so compelling that I was convinced that she was reliving uh, a real event. There was really no reason for her to fabricate this story when I was asking about her relationship with her sister. It would have been far more reasonable. I mean, if the, if there was if there was any power to suggestibility, the very fact that I was suggesting to her that you know that she, we're just going to deal with the issue between you and your sister 
would have taken her to something like, well, she pulled my hair, she stole my dollar, or, or you know, she drew on my wall or something like that that happened in, in the current lifetime. But the, the fact that she immediately went to another lifetime and described an event that was that was pretty pretty awful shook me up just a little bit shall we say because it uh, and I don't say it shook me up in an in an emotional sense or anything like that but it 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 uh it agitated my uh, my categories of things because as I said up to that moment I I didn't have any real reason to believe that reincarnation was was a fact there was there were many things that were suggestive of it and there were many stories and but nothing there was there was nothing that i had personally encountered that was that was so terribly compelling if you're going back and trying to figure out the source of the antagonistic relationship between these two sisters are you saying that it was the person who killed the the older sister who had now reincarnated as the younger sister? Apparently so. That was what I was being told. And that, interestingly, brings up another aspect of this situation because the younger sister absolutely, unquestionably adored her older sister and constantly was trying to do things to please her. So it was almost as though the younger sister, uh, assuming that we're... Uh, even going to talk about this as being a, a possible or probable reality, as though the younger sister were trying to make amends and the older sister was just having none of it. You know, you killed me. <laughs> I'm not going to forgive you ever, <laughs> no matter how nice you are to me. <laughs> so so it was kind of a, an interesting an interesting situation that thankfully was, was uh, happily resolved. And the antagonism between the two, you know, fell away and they uh, developed a very close relationship. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the whole concept kind of brings up uh, interesting questions about uh, many kind of um, parent-child relationships uh, or problematic parent-child relationships in terms of what uh, being able to understand the, um, the the actual source of those problematic relationships. You know, if, I mean, if, if, if I, for example, have a, a problem with a, a parent or, or a sibling, I'm having problems understanding uh, why this is, and I don't seem to be able to get over them. Then it might be helpful for a lot of people to to uh, to, to see that as a possibility that there may be past life issues. Yes, this is something that uh, really struck me at one point during my experimentations. That certainly, if people were aware of the possibility of reincarnation and worked with it from childhood on, as they do in some cultures. So many uh, very difficult relationships would have entirely different solutions because we would have different tools to deal with them. Now we have psychotherapy that just deals with you know current lives for the most part. There there are some psychiatrists who who uh, accept the possibility of reincarnation and work with those tools, but for the most part, you know Freudian type therapy. is based entirely on a materialistic view of the development of the of the psychology of the individual, you know, one layer at a time based on, you know, the uh the primary uh you know, the ids, the ego, the superego, etc. So there is is not a lot of of room for dealing with uh, the possibility of reincarnational issues being at play in discordant relationships. So 
Yes, indeed, it is entirely possible that, uh, you know, once again, assuming that we're dealing with a, a factual uh, phenomenon in reincarnation, that parents and children or siblings or husbands and wives could have had very uh, unpleasant or unhappy or even violent relationships in other lifetimes, and they then come together in in another lifetime, this lifetime, whatever you want to call it, and attempt to work those relationships out or in another sense maybe they're not even attempting to work those relationships out maybe because of uh, frequency matches uh, that were established during those previous lifetimes and that were still uh, predominant at the times that they died bring them back together even if there is no no real uh, karmic resolution being affected by this relationship that that nothing ever nothing positive ever happens that they you know continue to build a discordant relationship and it just gets worse and worse and and it may get worse and worse you know until they implode on each other you know five or ten lifetimes down the road and and that's it I don't necessarily know that the idea of karma that is generally promulgated with the teachings of reincarnation is is a fact because you know my observations are that uh, people don't necessarily work out relationships they they tend to compound them it just tends to get worse it doesn't get better unless there is intervention unless there is knowledge brought to bear on the situation and of course if our culture continues to deny this as a possibility as a, as a working hypothesis for psychological problems then you know, we have closed an entire large area of possibility off from our potential to be able to solve the difficulties of relationships between human beings. It might actually be an interesting topic for research uh, because there are many hundreds of millions of people in the world who uh, believe or whose whose religious beliefs allow for reincarnation, and it might be interesting to, to know if... Um, if that's actually part of that same culture, you know, if that bears on, on on relationships and how people work out relationships in those cultures, you know. Well, there is uh, there is a psychologist, uh, or maybe he's an anthropologist, I don't remember right offhand, Ian Stevenson, he's a professor, and he wrote a book entitled, uh, I, th- I believe it was Six Cases Suggestive of Reincarnation, and he, uh, I believe, was working with children in India who consciously remembered their past lives. And he studied these cases, and there was extremely compelling evidence that what they were saying, what these children were saying about their previous lives and who they were and what they were, was you know quite true because in, in some cases they were taken to the, the previous place where they lived, they recognized, they knew things, they, they, they recognized people, they were able to give information that only the individual that they claimed to have been could possibly have known. And uh, so still he, he entitled his book Suggestive of Reincarnation when, I, when in fact it was, it was extremely compelling. Which leads us, of course, to the, the, the situation that I was mentioning last week, the one that, that really turned, turned my thinking around. We'll pick up Laura's story in our next podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>